You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., the nation's leading nonpartisan debate series, where the world's most influential minds debate the most important questions of our time, and you decide who carries the day. Progressive populism unifies and brings us all together. The Republican Party is institutionally and demographically stronger than it's been in decades. But if religion and belief in God is such a great force driving moral progress, how come it fails so abysmally? Science is very good, but it's half the equation. You need both. The U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade practices. Capitalism is not a blessing. It's unstable. It's unequal, it's undemocratic, and it's unsustainable ecologically. We are winning the battle against uh, famine, war, pestilence, and even death. That is thanks to capitalism. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience will choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. Welcome to our first ever digital debate, where the setting may be virtual, but the arguments are real. And we are seeing all around us right now a kind of economic ice age, this shutdown in human activity ordered and organized by governments to slow the spread of the coronavirus. We're also seeing during this ice age of the economy a series of specific industries that are being stressed possibly to the breaking point. Airlines especially, but travel in general. Big swaths of the food industry, but especially restaurants. Professional sports, but also all entertainment that depended on getting together numerous people in one place. But the industry we're going to take a close look at in this debate is the one that gets summed up as the global financial system. And that's interesting to us because it was that system back in 2008 that brought us right to the brink of economic collapse. So what about this time? Is the global financial system at risk of seizing up as a result of widespread bankruptcies and unpaid loans and markets bereft of participants? Or is the global financial system able to withstand whatever may come thanks to lessons learned and reforms undertaken after the global financial crisis of 12 years ago? Well, in those questions, we think we have the makings of a debate. So that's what we did. We had it. Yes or no to this statement. The global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than for 2008. A quick note, we recorded this on Wednesday, April 29th. I was in Washington, D.C. My two guests, expert debaters who have spent years thinking about these issues, joined in from New York City and Cambridge, Massachusetts. As always, our debate went in three rounds, and then our audience, online this time, voted to choose the winner. But you can still weigh in on this one. We are taking votes online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. Right there on the homepage, you'll see our debate. Again, it's the global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than 2008. You can vote for, against, or undecided. If you're tuning in on podcast, you can click the link in our show notes as well. Okay, let's meet our debaters. Again, the resolution is this. The global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than for 2008. And arguing for that resolution, I want to say hello first to Jason Furman. Jason, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. Great to be here. Uh, Jason, you've debated with us before, and you were one of President Obama's top economic advisors, and you served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 17. You're now at Harvard University. You're a professor of the practice of economic policy, and we just want to say it's great to have you. We love the way you debate and the way you present an argument, so thanks for joining us. Just wish it was in person. <laughs> so do we. But 
this is the best we're going to do, and we are pleased to be doing it also with Jillian Tett. Jillian, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You are at the Financial Times US and chair of the editorial board. We want to thank you for joining us. Um, and I also want to put, uh, put out there a little bit of background for those who didn't attend our previous iteration of this debate. Back in 2019, we debated on the resolution 10 years after the global financial crisis, the system is safer. We had Jason Furman and Neil Kashgari arguing for the resolution, arguing against we had scheduled Jillian Tett and Kenneth Rogoff, except Jillian, we missed you that evening during uh, due to a, a flight mishap. So at the 11th hour, our chairman, Rose, Robert Rosencrantz, took your seat and he argued in your place. We're actually going to hear from him a little bit later in the program. So we're sorry to have missed you then. And as Jason said, we're sorry that it's not all in person now, but we are delighted to have you here and to have both of you making your cases for the side that you're on in this time of pandemic. And let's move on to round one. Uh, round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be four minutes each and up speaking first for the resolution. The global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than it was for 2008 is the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman. Jason, your time begins now. The novel coronavirus has created a massive human tragedy on a global scale. It's creating an economic tragedy on a global scale. I am very worried, not just about where the economy is today, which is a deliberate result of the, the virus and the policies to contain the virus, but I'm also worried about where the economy will be one, two, or three years from now and what the recovery um, will look like. The proposition in this debate, though, is whether the global financial system was better prepared than it was in 2008. And I'm going to try to convince you that the answer to that is definitely yes. In fact, of all the shoes that have dropped, that one has not. Whether this pandemic struck us in 2020 or 2010 or 2000 or 1990, it would have been devastating for the economy. The devastation would have been compounded if it was impossible to respond economically using the main tools that policymakers have, monetary and fiscal policy, and if it spread into a financial crisis, which is something we know from history can be very severe and almost guarantees long-lasting economic pain. One of the worries that people had recently as a few months ago was with fiscal policy. Would we have enough space to increase government spending or cut taxes if there was a crisis? Some people argued yes, some people argued no. The answer is now clearly yes. All of the advanced economies have had enough space to do massive amounts of increased spending, tax cuts of a scale that has not been seen since World War II. They've done that with interest rates that today are lower than where they were in 2009. In fact, today we're borrowing at negative real rates to finance that fiscal response, not the positive real rates we had then. A second concern was that we wouldn't have monetary policy. And yes, monetary policy has been constrained because we came into this with lower interest rates, but we learned a lot about how to conduct monetary policy in fighting the last crisis. And the Fed was very quick, as was the ECB, as have other central banks around the world, been very quick to move to that novel set of tools, sometimes called quantitative easing, that have greatly expanded their balance sheets. And as a result, we haven't seen interest rate spreads, a measure of risk in markets, rise anything like they did in the last crisis. And in fact, some key interest rates, like the interest rates on mortgages, um, have actually come down. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, is the banking system. Banks are like the nerve system of an economy. If they start to fail, you don't get lending, and people's money becomes unsafe. And history says that takes about a decade to recover from. We put in place much stricter rules on bank capital in the wake of the last crisis. And so banks went into this crisis holding larger buffers. 
about 50%, about twice as high by one measure, 50% by another. Regulators had been doing stress tests regularly to understand just what a nightmare scenario would look like for the banking system. And so they basically looked at and prepared for a scenario along the lines of what we're seeing now. Jason Furman, I'm very sorry, but your time is up. And now that you have heard Jason's argument for the resolution, let's go to our second debater who will be arguing against, again, the resolution being the global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than we were in 2008. Here to make her opening statements, Jillian Tett, editor-at-large at the Financial Times U.S. Well, I'd like to start by saluting the incredible things that policymakers have done in the last few weeks, which, as Jason has pointed out, are truly phenomenal and in many ways very brave. So well done. But and there's always a but we have to ask, why did policymakers need to take these extraordinarily extreme measures? It was partly because of the severity of the economic shock, but it was also because of something else. We have not learned all the right lessons from the last financial crisis or cleaned up the system to put it on a safer footing ahead of the next one, i.e. this one. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about some of the things that caused the last financial crisis. Debt. You'd think that after you've had a debt-fueled financial crisis, you would then go about and try and cut debt. Think again. In the last decade, debt as a proportion of global GDP has gone from 280% to 320%, and it's likely to go even higher as a result of the current crisis. In fact, people are saying it could go to 360%. So we have way too much debt, and that has made the financial system a lot more fragile. Secondly, Think about shadow banking. The last crisis had a big problem in the shadow banking sector. So you'd think that for this crisis, they would have actually cleaned up the shadow banking sector in the last decade. Wrong. This time round, the shadow banking sector's got even bigger. And we've already seen the brutal impact of that through things like hedge funds taking on way too much leverage in the treasuries market, creating the very nasty market gyrations in March that regulators had to step in and try and deal with. Complexity. You'd think that after the last crisis was caused by way too much complexity, they would have come in and simplified the system and ensured we actually understood how all the new flashy financial innovations actually worked. Have they done that? No. This time round, we not only have a whole bunch of new complex financial innovations which are not well understood, we also have the fact that electronic trading has taken over the markets to a degree that most regulators and certainly most investors and politicians do not understand what the robo-traders are doing, and that makes markets gyrate even more dramatically. And last but not least, contagion. Contagion means that we have to have a world where policymakers coordinate really closely. Now, the good news is central bank governors are coordinating very closely and there's incredible collaboration there. But the rest of the G20, forget about it. We've seen an incredible lack of leadership or coordination. So you take those four things together and I would argue that the financial system was less well prepared than it could have been, it should have been. And frankly, given what we knew about the 2008 crisis, it was in many ways less well prepared as a system than before 2008. And last but not least, there's two more points. Firstly, Jason said that there had been these fantastic stress tests in the system. And that's actually true. Again, I salute the regulators and people like him who've pushed for stress tests. The problem is, though, that they've only stress test for the last war, i.e. what would happen with the mortgage crisis, what would happen with the recession. They weren't looking at things like pandemics or trying to get imaginative about thinking about what could come next. And the worst problem of all, the thing that really upsets me about the current situation is that because there's been so much debt, because interest rates have been so rock bottom low, so many people in the system, including many mom and pop investors, have taken some crazy risks in the search for yield. And that's made the system even more fragile. When we return, we will hear the debaters go head to head. They'll also be taking questions from the audience. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US, and we'll be right back. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. 
the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. Now let's get to round two of our debate. To go back to the arguments that we heard, the resolution being the global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than 2008, we've heard both debaters assert that we're in a terrible situation. As Jason put it, we're facing a massive human tragedy, we're facing a massive economic tragedy, but he argues that on the resolution, uh, looking specifically at whether the uh, global financial system is in better shape now than it was in 2008 to handle a situation like this, he says, indubitably so, because of the reforms put in place uh, because of the development of novel tools. He concedes that interest rates are so low that there's not much room for the Fed to use that tool, but that quantitative easing is part of a solution. He says that the banks are much better capitalized than they were last time around. And that bottom line, if we were going through this coronavirus thing before 2008, we would be in much worse situation even than we are now, and the global financial system would not be holding up as well as it is. As he says right now, among all of the industries that are in trouble, this is the one where the other shoe has not dropped. Jillian Tett has countered that argument, first of all, by congratulating the innovation of, uh, of financial institutions around the world in trying to deal with this situation, taking note especially of the use of the quantitative easing tool that Jason was referring to. But she's saying that the, the fact that this tool has to be used and used to such an enormous degree, uh, resulting in an increase in such debt itself, is an indication that we're actually not better off, that we don't really know what's going on for two reasons, and that is that a large part of the global financial system is beyond the reach of regulators. I think she said, said something in the neighborhood of 75% of the global financial system is not just banking, but beyond and unregulated. And also um, that so much is now done by algorithms and by computers that we really don't even know how well we're doing. So that she, she would challenge the very idea that we could assert we're better off. So I want to take that point to Jason that Jillian made that because computers are so involved in making the split-second trading decisions, et cetera, that we're not really sure where we stand on this. I mean, first of all, we had an awful lot of algorithmic trading, you know, a decade ago. But more importantly, why has the stock market gone down? It's gone down because the present discounted value of corporate earnings have gone down because people are expecting a prolonged economic problem. The broad change in the stock market from February through now is roughly consistent with what you'd expect, given that you know certain industries like airlines hit very hard, you know other industries hit less hard, and 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 the like. Um, and so it broadly looks to me like a roughly rational response, and it's a rational response to a massive, massive, massive economic shock, the largest um, in a century, and nothing can insulate us and insulate markets against a shock that big. Jillian, what's your response to Jason's point that that he sees no sign that the algorithms are doing particularly irrational or unpredictable things, that uh, they're reflecting a, 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 a rough economic uh, situation? Jason's completely correct. There are very good fundamental reasons for why markets have collapsed by 25-30%, because guess what? The economic outlook looks a lot worse. But here's the real issue. You've had this incredible amount of volatility and crazy gyrations, much of which is due to the fact that the rise of electronic trading and robo-trading has changed the liquidity provision, i.e. how easy it is to actually trade or not. And what's worse than that is that although you have ultra-sophisticated hedge funds who understand what's going on, or you hope they understand it, you can bet your darn bother that the vast majority of retail investors have absolutely no idea and no hope of understanding what the robots are up to. So if you want to create a system where essentially wider society buys into the stock market and capitalism, you need to have some sense that they understand it 
rather than seeing ETF prices or stock prices go up by 5% one day, down by 5% the next, etc., etc. So for that reason, it's a very pernicious situation. So, Jason, there's a question, what, what were regulators doing by allowing rates to stay so long? And doesn't that in itself constitute an enormous risk to the system that does not reflect the sense that we're better off than in 2000, after 2008? The main goal of policy prior to the crisis was to have low unemployment and stable inflation. And policymakers were quite good on unemployment. It was quite low. Inflation was still below target, not above it. So I don't think monetary policy was too accommodative um, before this. And I think you risk getting you know, overly focused on the gyrations in markets, a lot of which, by the way, are a month, a month and a half in the past and that we're not seeing on a continual basis now. Because the Fed, rather than having to invent brand new tools, could take out the same tools that it invented a decade ago and keep interest rates for treasuries, for mortgages, for corporate debt in a relatively unstable um, place. So yes, if you look at certain technical features of markets, especially in March, you'll see all sorts of gyrations. You step back and look at the big picture, rates remarkably low and stable you know, financial system, remarkably stable. Of course, the equity market, as we both agree, is down. That reflects um, an underlying worse reality. But the place where regulators can affect things, credit markets have behaved, broadly speaking, uh, quite well. In my mind, one of the most pernicious aspects of what's happened in the last decade or 12 years is that Ultra-low interest rates and quantitative easing were initially introduced as a short-term, supposedly temporary measure, which has become, guess what, completely permanent. And that's had two or three impacts. One of them is that it's made it very hard to distinguish good companies from bad in the sense that everyone's being propped up. You have essentially zombie markets and zombie companies. Secondly, though, you have a situation where lots and lots of investors, including most pension fund managers and mom and pop investors, all the people who we kind of count on to essentially manage our money for the future, they have been taking crazy risks, increasingly crazy risks, because interest rates have been so low. They've been forced to look for returns in all kinds of different places. And the entire system has slid into a situation where it is essentially structurally addicted to low rates. Before 2008, you had a financial system addicted to private sector debt, um, a bit like somebody being addicted to heroin. And then you had a crisis and the central bank stepped in and they weaned the system of the private sector debt, the financial heroin, or they rather atoned for the sudden disappearance of that by providing morphine in the form of central bank credit, quantitative easing. That's essentially what it is. And what you've seen in the last couple of months is essentially a doubling down on that. Because when corporate bond prices, for example, started to collapse, which means that the cost of borrowing for companies started to go up, what did the central bank do? It stepped in and said it would buy corporate bonds and essentially support the market. So essentially, you've had a situation where you've come out of the last crisis even more addicted to morphine. And so the big question which hangs over the entire system, which nobody has an answer to at the moment, is what will happen if that supply of morphine central bank support ever dries up. Jason, do you, so Jillian's made this point a couple of times that the fact that we had to see central banks scrambling through March and into April in itself, like really scrambling, like massively unprecedented kind of responses in itself suggests that we're not better off, that these are, that, that it's the equivalent of coming up with a new way to put out a fire that because the old way didn't work. And I just want to get your response to, to that kind of bar that she's setting. The unemployment rate today might be higher than the unemployment rate was in the Great Depression. The economy has never, ever, ever had the type of negative growth rates that we're going to see in the second quarter of this year. Of course, the Fed had to do a huge amount. The people... Um, like Jillian, who were arguing that this was morphine and addictive and a problem, were making the argument that what happens if we get into a crisis? We won't have any tools left. 
We won't be able to do any more of this. We won't be able to respond. I'm not saying Jillian was making all of these arguments, but a lot of people were saying, you know, because of everything the Fed is doing, when we get into a real crisis, they won't have any room left to respond. Well, they have proven that completely wrong. They have had room to respond, and they have responded very effectively, taking something that in some ways is even worse than the Great Depression so far and made it so you'd barely even notice what was going on in credit markets if you weren't watching obsessively. Well, Jason, I take your point, but the reality is the Fed has bought peace today or a modicum of peace at extraordinary cost for the future because it's come in, it's provided all this cheap credit, all this cheap money, which essentially is propping up companies which may yet go bust, in which case somebody's going to have to pay the price of that and take take the losses there. It's essentially meant that anyone who's a saver can't get any return going forward because with rates ultra low almost indefinitely, there won't be the normal kind of returns that so many savers depend on. And it's also doing all this at the potential cost of threatening the central bank's own credibility. Because where we are heading now is essentially about the central bank buying government debt directly, underwriting the operations of the government quite directly. And that is something which could end up essentially leaving the central bank simply as a tool of the government. And if at any point people start to doubt the ability of America or the government to pay back that debt, doubt the ability that central banks actually independent enough to keep inflation low, then you could start to see a real financial crisis where people flee the treasury bond market, the government bond market, interest rates go spiraling up, the currency collapses, and you have a really nasty mess. That is not theoretical. We've seen that story play out a lot of times in other emerging markets. We've not seen it happen in America because people trust America right now. But where we're heading with this kind of combination of extreme measures could potentially be towards that kind of picture some way down the road. So, so Jason, what, what I hear from Jillian is a framing that's somewhat diff- a little bit different from yours. You're saying so far the system has held up. And Jillian is saying so far isn't enough of an answer because this is an unfolding situation and that the seeds are sown for financial global system disaster or breakdown or seize up, that we're, we're so not out of this that you shouldn't be calling this better than 2008. First of all, are you asking me, is the system going to be perfect for the next several years? I'm certainly not going to argue that. If we are in the same economic position we are right now for the next year, we're going to have lots of problems in our financial system. I think that we are in better shape, though, because we came into this with low unemployment, with a somewhat higher inflation rate, and had the central bank not been doing what it was doing over the last decade, um, we would have had economic problems even before this shock um, hit us. All right. I'd like to move on to some audience questions. And uh, we reached out to some of our most engaged audience members. And boy, did they have questions. So we're going to get to them in just a second. But first, I wanted to go to a special uh, questioner. And that's our our chairman of Intelligence Squared, Robert Rosencrantz, who argued, uh, as I said earlier, in a debate in 2019 on whether 10 years after the financial crisis, we were better prepared or not. He argued against the resolution at that point. But Bob, welcome to our first um, virtual debate. Hi, John. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. In our previous take on this debate, I argued that the financial system was less prepared to deal with a crisis than it was back in uh, 2008. And I've actually changed my mind about that. The main reason I've changed my mind is that the principal argument, or at least one of the principal arguments that I advanced, was the notion that governments were simply going to be less capable of reacting to a crisis. I felt that the Uh, executive of the U.S. government was less well-staffed than it was then. I felt that Congress was more paralyzed by partisanship than it was then. I felt that U.S. global leadership was substantially diminished and therefore it would be very hard to coordinate a global response to a global economic challenge. And I have to admit, I have been pleasantly surprised on all of those fronts. 
the government has stepped up with a huge stimulus package, some $2 trillion, covering all manner of rescue for vulnerable segments of the economy. Uh, the Fed has expanded its balance sheet enormously. And there has been a degree of international coordination, if not conscious, at least that the major economies of the world have all converged on very similar policies of uh, very uh, accommodative monetary policy, central banks driving interest rates around the world to zero, making abundant capital available to the to, to keep the markets uh, liquid. All of that has happened at a time pace and at a magnitude that far exceeds what we saw in 0809. So I really feel like the, the global governmental response to this has been far better than I would have anticipated. Uh, this is a question for Jillian Ted. So y you've uh, posited that one of the big risk factors in today's world is the uh, amount of debt outstanding. U.S. government debt is now uh, close to 100% of GNP and will be well over 100% of GNP uh, as the next year plays out. But Japan, for example, has government debt of around 250% of GNP, and it has pretty steadily been able to increase uh, uh, GNP on a per capita basis for decades now. So where is the evidence that current levels of debt are indeed dangerous? Well, we certainly are likely to see many years of low or stagnant growth as a result of the debt burden. And I would suspect that the response of the authorities over time will be what people call financial repression. That's essentially a concept pioneered by people like Carmen Reinhardt that argues that the most effective way to reduce debt, which was used after World War II, is to engineer a situation where for many, many years, interest rates are head, held below inflation. Um, and that essentially means that anyone holding bonds ends up subsidizing the government and helping them to pay down the debt. So you can do that, but it takes a long time. And the reason why Japan has been able to weather its high debt burden and the fact that its growth has not been particularly vibrant is because it has a really strong sense of social cohesion and shared pain. If we look at the Western Anglo-Saxon economies, as they move into a world with these absolutely astonishing levels of debt we've not seen since World War II, do they have the social cohesion to actually engineer a smooth reduction in debt over time? Are we going to have dramatic financial durations? Are we going to have social explosions or even quasi-debt jubilees and defaults? None of those last... Um, potential outcomes are good for the financial system or as it happens for the economies. What, what's your take on that, Jason? You, you know, Jillian's arguing that J Japan had advantages in being able to bring the debt back down that we, and G GNP up relative to in the population that we don't have. And therein, again, lie the seas of disaster in the kind of responses that are happening right now. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think the fiscal crisis and the debt crisis is the single most predicted economic crisis we've had. It's been predicted over and over and over again. And a lot of the people predicting it said, you know, if we have a crisis, we won't be able to borrow to get out of it. Well, look where interest rates are right now. Look at our ability to borrow to deal with this. It's quite large. So I think people have massively overstated the evidence for the impact of debt in causing crises, massively overstated the evidence for it being a large negative um, for economic growth. That evidence is barely there. There's no evidence for a threshold that you cross over and all of a sudden it becomes um, a problem. There's a little bit of a um, contradiction in the argument Jillian is making, because if we had had less of this debt, then interest rates would have been even lower. So I think you can't simultaneously condemn the Fed and other central banks for low interest rates and have a policy prescription whose main effect would be that interest rates um, would be a lot lower. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. More questions when we return.
It's time to take questions from our audience, starting with one sent in by a journalist, Alison Schrager. Hi, I'm Alison, and my question is for the foresight. If the financial system was so well prepared, why does the corporate bond market need so much liquidity now from the Fed? Because the United States and the global economy is going through the worst thing it's gone through in a century. And that's what you have central banks for. Central banks are the lenders of last resort. Governments are the borrowers of last resort. When no one knows how deep this is going to go, how long this can last, even if you had superb credit going into this, it's going to be a bit harder for you to borrow. And so that's why we have lenders of last resort. They're there for floods. There is a massive flood right now. They're doing what they do in that flood. And, you know, it's working. All right. We have a question now from Caitlin in Vermont. And Caitlin says, it seems we are more politically polarized than we were in 2008, and the U.S. is not taking a global leadership position. Given the rise of populist economic policies and America first, can we really say that we were better prepared in 2020 for coronavirus? And Jillian, that that goes to a point that you were beginning to develop in your opening argument. So I'd like you to take that question on first. One of the problems is that to get out of a crisis like this, you're going to have to make very hard choices about how you spread the pain. And you can either collectively decide how to spread the pain in a very egalitarian way that ensures that everyone's going to buy in, or you can simply force weak people to take the pain, or you get a revolution and force you know, wealthy people to take the pain. Um, but it does concern me that America doesn't have currently a mechanism for smoothly and fairly spreading pain that will get buy-in. It's going to be a question that's going to haunt America for many, many years, because it's not just about who's going to cope with the potential loss of economic activity today. It's what's going to happen in five years' time when people are starting to try and pay down the debt. Jason, I want to take that question also to you, but and also add this layer to it. Um, the America First message also is very, very likely alienating and has been alienating to our traditional allies and even uh, financially important rivals like China. And in a situation like this, where you where you want to have some sort of global cooperation, are are we in an era where where we are better off to make the finan- global financial system work in a cooperative way than we were in two thousand and eight? Yeah, I think the answer to that is is mixed, frankly. Um, in some respects, we're better off. Um, the IMF had $250 billion of capacity for lending back then. Now it has $1 trillion of capacity for lending. Um, the $1 trillion, by the way, is not enough. I think they're going to get $2.5 trillion of requests. You know, obviously, the, I, the United States is not working very cooperatively with the WHO, and they're an organization that's more important, not just for health, but ultimately for the economy as well um, than the IMF. And political polarization has affected you know, the way people even read the facts on the extent of the virus, the dangers of its spreading, um, and how it should be responded to. So I think political polarization has gotten in the way of our response. On the economic side, not so badly that we didn't move more quickly than we ever have in history to do something larger than we've ever done in history to deal with a economic crisis, which was the CARES Act. The Fed, I think, has been outstandingly professional, but certainly I wish we had you know, a more competent and less polarized and more globally oriented political system right now. I want to go to one more question, and this one comes from Rick in New York, and it actually goes to what we've been talking about. And Rick basically is saying, people are saying this is not a time to be worried about deficits. Our government can just print the money it needs. And Rick asks, when do deficits matter? Deficits matter if you can't persuade investors to buy your debt or bully them into doing so. Whether they do or don't depends partly on whether they think that you're country is an attractive bet to lend money to, um, but also what the other alternatives are. And in the case of America right now, it has the advantage of having a reserve currency and the ability to keep printing money. And it also has the advantage that although things look bad in America, they look pretty rubbish everywhere right now. The problem going forward, though, is will domestic investors keep buying American debt if you end up in a situation of financial crushing, 
where essentially people try and cut the debt burden by having negative real rates. Um, will other countries keep buying American debt? Will geopolitics break down to a point where they don't want to? Or where other alternatives, say at home, say in China or other parts of the world, look more attractive? We don't know. But that's a point when the deficit will start to matter. Yeah, I mean, people keep moving the yardstick and predicting, you know, just around the corner, interest rates are going to shoot up and all sorts of problems um, are going to happen. And that keeps not materializing. I think that in part is because what Jillian said is if all countries' debt is going up, you know, who are you going to who are you going to turn to? What assets are you um, going to buy? And ultimately, what matters for fiscal sustainability is that you have an economy to repay that debt. And if you don't undertake that debt, because right now there's a huge liquidity crunch because of a huge economic crisis. Um, and if you're not undertaking borrowing to deal with that liquidity crunch, you're not going to have an economy left. And that's the biggest problem um, you could have with fiscal sustainability. All right, that concludes round two of our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. So round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. And we'll start with you, Jason Furman. Thank you so much. There's all sorts of ways that we were not prepared for this. There are all sorts of ways that we did not respond well to what's happened. Almost all of those are on the health side, with preparing for a pandemic, with having tests ready, with doing earlier lockdowns. The part of our system that has functioned well has been central banks around the world. The fiscal policy of taxes and spending hasn't been perfect but it's been quite good. Governments had a set of tools that they knew how to use from the last crisis, and this time they rolled them out much faster than they did last time, at a much larger scale than they did last time. And as a result, while we still have a lot of economic damage, and I expect us to, they have been able to keep it contained because it hasn't blown up the financial system also. That'll take a lot of things. Jillian pointed to a lot of extraordinary actions that the central bank has taken. You are going to take extraordinary actions in the face of an extraordinary and almost unprecedented economic crisis. And I'm glad that the global financial system was better prepared to deal with this crisis than we were 12 years ago. Thank you, Jason Furman, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and now to make her closing statement against the resolution editor-at-large at the Financial Times U.S., Jillian Tett. I would argue that if you want to understand what's happened today, think about that infamous Maginot line or the defenses that the French built after World War I to try and prevent the Germans from invading using what had happened last time round. We have a very similar situation right now, and in some ways it's even worse. Because essentially, the authorities have already used up a lot of their ammunition, seemingly quite needlessly in recent years, by keeping interest rates ultra low and by letting debt racket up to dramatic levels, even in the so-called peacetime, even in a boom. At the same time, though, they were so busy preparing for the last crisis that they missed some of the problems that were likely to come this time round. Not just by not focusing enough on the pandemic, but say being so obsessed with mortgage securities that they failed to see what was happening in the corporate and leveraged loan world. So we are now in a situation where essentially the central banks are having to double down to extraordinary degrees to step into the markets, to essentially meddle in the markets to a point where they are increasingly not necessarily functioning like free markets anymore and without a clear exit plan in place. But I'm seriously concerned about the future. So I suspect the kind of crunch we've seen in the last month could end up being simply a foretaste of what is coming. You can't have the medicine be worse than the actual problem it's trying to solve. And I fear that the current wave of medicine shows that the system was not healthy to start with and it's going to be making it thicker in the future again. Thank you, Jason and Jillian. And that concludes round three of our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. The argumentation is over. The arguing is over. And now we are asking you, our at-home audience, to cast your second vote to tell us where you stand after hearing both sides' arguments. You can one more time go to iq2us.org forward slash vote. iq, the number two, us.org. So the debate is over. 
this debate is over, but the financial crisis, the global crisis, the economic crisis, the health crisis certainly is not. And as long as we have the two of you who are experts in the global financial system, uh, surely there are places where we think you agree. We heard some of it. And we just want to open end up, uh, finish up this part of the conversation with a little more free-form conversation. It's not competitive, just to see what you're thinking uh, is going on in the, in the economy. So, Jillian, um, you recently wrote a piece in the Financial Times, and the title was, How Much Should It Cost to Contain a Pandemic? Let's start there. What, what was the premise of that article? Well, it was basically to try and highlight some very interesting research that's come out in New Zealand, where one economist has had dared publish what he thinks is a reasonable amount of spending to contain the pandemic relative to the number of potential deaths. He did that by taking the 1918 pandemic and modeling for the present. But what's interesting is that that's a conversation that very few governments have been willing to have in public for understandable reasons, because it's very distasteful. But as we come out of the first peak, if you like, and hopefully we are coming out of the first peak and think about second peaks or returns of the pandemic, it's a question that's going to become increasingly serious because Unfortunately, the trade-off between massive amounts of spending and economic shocks versus life saves is something that is not just difficult to make, but it also pits different generations against each other. Jason, I, I was reading um, uh, an interview you gave back in early March when things were beginning to unravel in the United States, and somebody asked you, like, what should what should the Fed be doing? What should the, the, the U.S. government be doing? And and you basically wrote out a menu of options, almost all of which they've they've now taken up. And you were talking about trillions of dollars even at that time. But if we look longer term at, at what's happening to the economy right now, where are you where are you looking to see what the lasting effects of this are going to be? Yeah. Um, and let me just briefly address what Jillian said, because um, I completely agree, by the way, in regulation, we all the time put a cost on the value of life. And we ask, is this cost worth it? Is that cost not worth it? And you need to do that when you have a limited budget, when you have constraints. I think so far, there actually hasn't been a trade-off, which is to say steps to help protect lives also will help the economy. China did a more complete shutdown in its first quarter than we have done. They had a bigger hit to their economic growth and I think they're going to have stronger growth in the rest of the year precisely because they shut down their economy to a greater degree. So I think there's sometimes where there's no trade-off between saving lives and saving the economy. That's the place we've been. I think we're heading to a place with a trade-off. In terms of your question, John, the thing that is the hardest is to keep a supply side of the economy together. You can make sure people have demand. You can write them checks. You can give them unemployment insurance. You can keep the financial system together by using the Fed's and central bank's lender of last resort function. But if a, somebody gets fired from their job, it takes a while to be rehired. If they have to be rehired in a different sector, then it takes even longer. And so, you know, of the people who have lost their jobs, how many were furloughed and get called back versus how many were fired and have to go find a new job? You know, businesses, how many are temporarily dormant and spring back versus, you know, go bankrupt and get liquidated. Um, those are the things that will determine how long and painful the economic slog out of this is. It's sort of the same question to you, Jillian. I mean, what, what do you see as the, the long-term impacts of the pandemic if it stopped today? And we know that it won't, but have long-term impacts already been made? And if it does go on, if we have a slow, slow return to uh, more business as usual, or if we have a second wave, wh what do you see as the long-term impacts? What could be fatally broken or potentially broken or, or need to ha be, have to be remade entirely? What this pandemic has shown is that we are all linked in a global chain of humanity. And if we ignore the weakest link and it breaks, we can all suffer. I very much hope that this is going to create a world of greater awareness of our connectivity. And I hope that out of this comes a renewed appreciation, the need to think about the more vulnerable in society, to think about trying to build more sustainable growth, to recognizing that science matters, to recognize that sometimes people have to have short-term sacrifice and accept pain 
to avoid longer-term risks. That's what I hope. I fear that what we may be heading for is a world where resources are more constrained, where there'll be more bitter fights over how to divide up that pie if it shrinks, where you may get more intergenerational conflict and where the issue of rising debt and slowing growth is going to make all of those choices much harder. And the other thing is that as someone who trained originally as an anthropologist before becoming a journalist, people's time horizons have become very shortened. People's geographical vision, oddly enough, have become very much inward-looking. Um, we're living, moving towards a world of greater localization in our vision not globalization. And there's a sense of pervasive insecurity, I suspect, that will not go away anytime soon. So countering those psychological aspects is going to be very difficult. And that could definitely weigh on the economy and growth as well. Jason, to wrap this up, I liked the framing that Jillian put on this of her hopes and fears. What are your hopes and fears? And give us the fears first so that we can end on a hope. I mean, the worst Three fears are that COVID-19 stays with us, which is a possibility, that this is the beginning of more of these diseases emerging, which is a possibility, and that it encourages you know, bioterrorism, and that's a possibility. In terms of the hopes, I hope that we figure out a way to handle this on the health side, therapeutic, vaccine, and the like. The faster that happens, the more we can contain the damage. I hope we come together in a global manner going forward to deal not just with infectious diseases, but so many of the problems that we face that really do cross borders and don't lend themselves to a national solution. And I hope people understand the government, for whatever frustrations and bumps in the road along the way, played a central role in saving millions of lives and in protecting the economy from something much worse, and believe in its efficacy and importance going forward. And now it's time to declare a winner. Remember, it's the side that pulls over the most votes between the first and the second vote that is named our winner. We had two votes on this resolution. The global financial system was better prepared for the pandemic than 2008. Let's look at the results. Before the debate, in polling our online audience, 43% were for it, 31% were against, 26% were undecided. So the debater for the resolution, Jason Furman, the first vote was 43%. Let's look at the second vote. His second vote, he got 50%. He pulled up seven points, which is now the number to beat. Let's see how Jillian Tett did against the resolution. Her first vote was 31%. Her second vote was 40%. She pulled up nine percentage points, and that is enough to win. Jillian Tett, arguing against the resolution, has won our debate. Congratulations to her. And thank you also to Jason. And thank you for joining us. Remember, the online vote continues at iq2us.org. So cast your second vote now. This debate was recorded on April 29th, 2020, at home. Intelligence Squared is funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Also at home, the Intelligence Squared U.S. team, Clea Connor, our CEO, Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff, Shea O'Mara is Director of Editorial, Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist, Jennifer Zelmer is Senior Researcher, Mary Dewey and Rob Christensen are our Radio Producers, Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman, and I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much for joining us. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.